Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Pooh is the essence of childhood adventure, childhood imagination, a childhood uh, fantasies. It's the perfectly safe world. Everybody is nice. They're all characters. They're all peculiar. Rabbit's very fastidious and fussy, and Owl is a windbag. He talks all the time, but they're all lovable. They're all wonderful. And Pooh, of course, is a bear of very little brain, but he's all love. And it's safety, and it's, it's purity, and it's something I wish we all had more of in this world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. Before we start, I just wanted to say an enormous thank you to everyone who has been sending in messages and emails telling us how much they've been enjoying Ink and Paint, including Mitch, who told us that he's thoroughly enjoying the pacing and structure of the episodes and appreciates the time you've taken to compile so much information and arrange it in a way that tells a compelling story. And from Steve, who wrote that he's especially enjoyed the in-betweeners and hearing the historical context of how each movie got made. We also heard from Flannery, who complimented our guests, who add complexity and depth to the podcast. Thanks to all of you for such wonderful messages and feedback. I also wanted to thank all the listeners who have signed up to our Patreon. It's very humbling to have your support in keeping Ink and Paint going, and you should already have your first bonus episode ready to listen to. For more information about how to sign up to our Patreon, listen for details at the end of the episode. On our previous episode, we took a trip to Sherwood Forest and into the, one of the great cult classics of the Disney canon, Robin Hood. In this episode, we head to a different forest, into the Hundred Acre Wood, and the introduction of one of the most iconic characters in Disney animation with the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I am joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by Sarah Collins and Justin Kennedy. Sarah is a Melbourne-based creative working across the mediums of theatre, both writing and performing, comedy and photography. Her shows have played the Art Centre Melbourne, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Melbourne, Adelaide and New Zealand Fringe Festivals and the Darwin Festival. As a photographer, she has been a regular contributor to the design files, whilst her portrait work has appeared anywhere from the local rag to Vogue. Justin is a writer-performer who has done everything from touring Australia as a stand-up comedian to being head writer of a Logie award-winning TV show. As an actor, he's appeared on the TV series Utopia, The XPM, The Time of Our Lives, and It's a Date, as well as the self-help phenomenon The Secret, on which he was also a frequently bemused writer. Justin has lent his voice to a number of animated series, playing gangster cats, evil mice, and sometimes even people. He has written for the shows Rove, The Weekly with Charlie Pickering, Letters and Numbers, and Hard Quiz, where he is currently a senior writer. Justin was also head writer of The Project for six years, 
a time many unnamed people have described as the show's golden age. Sarah and Justin are also the proud parents to two children, three chooks and a cat, non-gangster. Sarah and Justin, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And I know who I'd rather be. You've got a better bio. <laughs> I've got to rewrite mine after hearing that. <laughs> you can have mine. It's, it's part of the marriage Thanks. thing, isn't it? Cool. The, yep. the, the... I mean, Justin, you are a comedy writer. I think if, you're, if your bio didn't have at least some, you know, some great charming jokes, and I think we've all been a bit worried. Yes, yes. My, my jokes are big on charm. <laughs> that's, what, that's what all my audiences would say. Oh, how, what, a, what a charming... Somewhat unfunny fellow. Oh, I, I would not call you unfunny, but charming most definitely. But to use that as a jump into my first question, which is about both of you, both of you have worked extensively in comedy in some capacity, either as you know comedy writing or comedy performing. What led you both to comedy as an art form? What was it that drew you to comedy as a form and why have you stuck with it? Well, for me, um, I think part of it is, uh, you know, I think it's that classic... Um, class clown situation, little kid, skinny guy trying to avoid being beat up, tries to be funny. That was kind of, it was, it was I think, largely survival for me um, in school. And, uh, but then I also just love comedy albums. I mean, I just loved uh, like Steve Martin growing up and, um, you know, it was, it was a strange kind of eclectic mix that later on you kind of go, I can't believe I like that. Like Rod- <laughs> Rodney Roode. I think Rodney Roode was like my, my the first tape I ever got. Uh, when I was in year eight or something like that. I don't think you're in an Australian household if someone didn't have a Rodney, Rodney Rude tape. Everybody had at least one. Absolutely. And I just remember laughing so much that my sides hurt. And then now, you know, if I heard any of it, I just go, oh, my God, that's just the worst. And, uh, and you know, also Eddie Murphy, you know, now some of that, that early stuff was is horrendous. But, um, but other parts of it, I just remember laughing and laughing, laughing. So, uh, you know, I just loved kind of gravitated towards, uh, you know, comedy as a, as a kid. And then later on, I, um, I wanted to be an actor when I first left high school and um, uh, pursued that for about four years or so. And then I guess I, I had what I would call a, a quarter life breakdown and basically just gave it all away and, uh, and got a, uh, went, went back to uni and studied business and got a marketing degree. Did that for like a few years. And then I was actually, it was my mum's 60th birthday and we, all of the, the three kids, we did a bit of a, um, uh, gave a speech for her. My, um, my younger sister started first and she did a very earnest speech, my brother. He also gave a quite an earnest speech. And then I guess I think I have some sort of inability to actually be sincere. <laughs> to be honest, I have a problem with it. It makes me feel all funny. So uh, in order to, um, to get around that, I basically just roasted my mum. And, and it got a huge response. And actually at that time, it just kind of something clicked in me. And I thought, I, I want to I do this. And so um, I enrolled, enlisted up in, in um, raw comedy, um, applied for raw comedy, I guess it would be, um, and um, did the gig and in front of like 300 or so people at the Comics Lounge. I remember just being so incredibly nervous up until the about 30 seconds after I first spoke and got a laugh and then everything just eased and I thought, this is it. This is just what I'm you know, supposed to do or, <laughs> uh, or want to do anyway. I quit my job uh, five days later and I haven't done anything else since. And that was about, um, that was in 2002. And how about for you, Sarah? How did comedy cross your path? Quite by accident, Daniel. Um, <laughs> I, I did a show. So the first show that I wrote straight out of university 
was a show. It was loosely based on my growing up in Toowoomba. It was called Nothing Extraordinary Ever Happens in Toowoomba Ever. I wrote that and it's funny what Justin was saying about, you know, um, earnestness. I, I wrote it as quite an earnest piece. I just thought that people would sit there and listen to it and just take it in. And I remember being on stage and the audience were laughing the entire way through. And I think probably the first three nights of that show, I was pissed off. I couldn't, (laughs) I was like, why are they not listening? Like, it's a lovely, beautiful story that I have crafted. And I actually, that's how not aware I was that I could be funny. I literally was, I didn't even get it. I didn't, there was nothing. Yeah. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how shocking it was to hear laughter. And all the the reviews that came out were like comedian Sarah Collins. And that was really shocking as well. I was like, I'm not, I can't do stand up. I am not a comedian at all. I was so embarrassed. I mean, they're just like little, you know, little Melbourne press bits, but I was still, I was very new to it. And so it felt quite, I felt like a fraud that they said that. And then by the end of the run, I was so. I I wouldn't say addicted, but I just, I knew the laugh points and I was working them. And, you know, I, I really came to enjoy how much laughter there was. And every show since, can I tell you, we have, if we've ever had producers, we're like, oh, should we put this in the comedy section of a Fringe Festival or should we put it in, you know, the straight theatre? And they're always like, go straight theatre. And then every bloody time people are like, this is hysterical. It should have been in comedy. So it still <laughs> happens all the time. And um, I, yeah, it is so strange. But what I, I also laugh at is that growing up I did like you would laugh if I told you the extracurricular activities that I attempted. I mean, we're talking anything from synchronized swimming. I did pottery. I did, I mean, I could honestly, I did brown, like I did so many things and yet I never did theater. I never did, took, never took a drama class. I did high school drama, but I never did any performing. And yet if you look back, we've got family videos and there's just all these videos of me and I'm in character all the freaking time. And Justin looked, he actually saw them, I remember maybe say five years ago, we had them transferred to DVD and he was like, I can't believe that you never thought that you, you know, would ever go on to do acting or anything. Cause he was just like, you're, you just constantly like, you're just making up these characters and doing voices. And I'm like taking off full frontal characters. And, and I also look back at our uni degree, Daniel, um, which yes, we, we went through performing arts at yes, Monash yes. together. Sarah and I have known each other for a very, for a very long time, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and every single assessment, I never put the pieces together that every single assessment that I ever did um, with performance was a comedy, including our Shakespeare, might yes. I add, which, you know, everybody took a more serious, um, you know, uh, lean to that assignment. And you and I chose this ridiculous scene. We took the piss. We took the absolute piss. <laughs> yeah. Every single assessment. It was like, how did I not know that that's what I would it's just, it's absurd to me now. It really is. But yeah, it just, it just was never part of my, yeah, uh, you know, my awareness, I guess. Well, I kind of bounce off from that because the next question I had relating to both of your collective works together is the stuff you've done together. You know, after the Toowoomba, you've done a number of shows 
you know, both as performers and writers to, um, working together. And a lot of those shows have lent in towards exploring the childhood experiences or the formative experiences of, of a character. What leads both of you towards work that explores those formative years? Why are they the stories that you as storytellers together are drawn to? I mean, they could be childhood stories, but also, you know, it was your show Buckets List, was, which while it wasn't a child story, still felt like it was exploring formative experiences. Mm, it was very childlike, I would say, yeah. Um, I am going to answer by saying that I think it was from growing up in the country in a very, very small petri dish of a town where you knew everybody and my cousins who actually grew up in Brisbane, they were like, you were literally raised at the foot of storytellers. You know, like my grandmother was just like the biggest gossip. She was lovely, <laughs> but she did not stop talking about every person in that town and what they were doing. It was like she fed off it and she would do all the voices and everything. And I think that, yeah, when you come from a place where you literally, like Justin is now really used to it. He knows all these families of Toowoomba. I can tell the stories. And he's like, oh, is that the family that's the cousins of that family that owned the shop in that street? And it's like he's part of that fabric now just from marrying into it. Do you have a map, Justin? Have you had to, like, draw up a map of Toowoomba and this is where this family is and this is where this family is? And- yeah, it's a little actually reminiscent of um, of Winnie the Pooh. You know, you say, you have that, you know, <laughs> Pooh's Corner and, and uh, true. You know, Eeyore's little place. It's like I have that in my head. It's kind of like, yeah, you, you it's like it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings as well. You have all those kind of the things going everywhere and the, the pl- you plot the, the, the path over here, the place to avoid. <laughs> Wilson's <laughs> stay away from Wilson. Wilson is like Mordor. Um <laughs> Because it's kind of like it's it's because it's inside a, uh, a a crater like a, a former volcano, so it's kind of it's got that sort of. Uh, That's why I say petri dish because it literally is the shape of a petri dish, and I think you you just can't you can't escape story there because that's what the town operates on. It, it is the currency um, by which you, yeah, you. That's how you. Um, negotiate it's how you introduce yourself it's how you know every single moment in a town like that is is based on story I don't know if that properly um answers that you know the the childlike you know element of what you're with with the shows but I think that certainly it's the most any anytime I think of a new idea it's always set back there and if it's if I try to sort of take it out of of that context it's um it's incredibly difficult and yeah, it, it was just so formative. It was just, it was so tiny that you, every square inch is almost sort of like it's part of your being. It's, it's mapped. And yeah, I find it incredibly easy to draw inspiration from that rather than say Melbourne, which I've lived in, you know, I've lived here since 2005, but I would still draw, I'd still draw from my growing up rather than from here. Well, to segue from talking about formative childhood experiences talking about Disney. Do both of you remember what the first Disney animated feature was that you saw? Justin, do you remember your very first Disney animated feature? I would say that it was Bambi. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> what a that place old, to I didn't, start. I didn't see when it originally came out, but I did. I think it was a reissue um, because I remember going to the cinema with my mum to see it. I have kind of distinct memories of certain, just certain things, just you know, about Thumper and then the 
the dreadful twist with Bambi's parents. I don't want to spoil it for people at home, but uh, oh, it, uh, oh it, she's she, she dies. Every, everyone, oh, every, everyone who's listened, it's, it's one podcast where you can guarantee everybody knows the twist, the horrible spoiler in Bambi. It's this one. Well, I was going to ask you're the first person I've spoken to who said that Bambi was their first Disney feature. Was that a traumatizing experience as a child to see something that both something that forceful, but also something that sad? Well, it's funny. I don't remember a single thing that happened in my childhood after that cinema experience. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say it, it was, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, it, well, the fact that I can remember that one moment, and I don't rem- remember too much of the movie. Yes, I remember Thumper because he was, you know, a, a bit of a jerk and his mum said, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That probably reminded me of me a little bit. So I remember that. And then I remember, yeah, the, the moment when Bambi's um, mum died. So I'm assuming from that that it must have been a real kind of gut punch for, uh, you know, six or so year old Justin. And so um, that, but a lot of the other ones, I'm, I was trying to work out in my head what I saw first, it was, if it was the Sword and the Stone and the Rescuers. I, I would have seen them all around the same time because they might have been on the television um, as well. But I do have a distinct memory of going to see Bambi at the cinema and uh, and just the, um, yeah, just that, the the experience, the, the, the theatre or cinema experience of going to see it was, was quite something. And how about for you, Sarah? Do you remember what your first Disney animated feature was? I do. It's a hybrid, Daniel. It's Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Oh my God! That no one, no one has said that one yet. Yeah, I, I figured that they probably wouldn't because I don't know why. I think because I had an older brother. I think that was I was really little and I probably shouldn't have watched it. It's got some really scary bits in it where soldiers. I remember that this armor coming to life in a battle yes. scene or something to, to and fight the Nazis. The yeah, armor comes Nazis. to life at the end to fight the Nazis, <laughs> the Nazis as they refer to them in the film. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I still remember just, I mean, all the music and, oh, God, it was so magical. But that part terrified me. And the other part that I really hated in it was there was a soccer game, a soccer match, and they're bouncing it back and forth to each other and actually hurting each other. And, like, yeah, I I always remember being so sad by that scene. It's meant to be a very humorous scene, but I was so upset by it. I think they, like, bounce a – now, what are the animals? They're ostriches, I think. Ostriches, lions and rhinos and basically all of the animals that would end up in Robin Hood, I think. Yes, all of them. Yes. So it's actual, it's animal. That's why it's all animal cruelty. They're they're just doing awful things to each other until they're all on this field, completely half dead. Yeah. So I I remember that as well. But I also, I mean, the beautiful bits with the, you know, um, where they're dancing in the sea and, oh my gosh, just magical, completely magical. I loved it. And how, I mean, I would love to talk about you know, Disney's presence through your childhood, but I you know, would be remiss not to bring up the fact that you do have children yourselves. And I know that for one of your children, Disney's quite a big deal. What has it been like as parents having Disney present in your household and seeing it through the eyes of your own children? I don't remember a time where our child hasn't pretended to be a character from Disney or it's just been synonymous with her every like since she could talk basically but two moments stand out 
where she got really, really obsessed with the Beauty and the Beast death scene where the Beast dies and only a kiss will a kiss will sort of make things better. And oh so, my god! Yeah, so she would play the Beast and she would <laughs> <laughs> she would just lay there. Nothing could break her concentration. This is when she was two, and she would just be all out, like limp on the ground or bed or whatever. And my mum who doesn't live here, had come down to visit and Polly's lying there and saying, yeah, can we play Belle and the Beast? And my mum was like, okay, no worries, like having no idea what she's meant to be doing. And (laughs) somehow Polly communicated that the only thing that would, you know, get her to to come to life was a a kiss. And my mum was like trying so (laughs) so so hard to get her to get up um and not really like she she I think she thought Polly was sleeping or something and eventually she just (laughs) screamed at my mother I'm dead (laughs) 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 with the successful release of Robin Hood in 1973 the animation department at Walt Disney Productions seemed to have found its feet after the death of Walt. Their first two films had been important steps towards autonomy. The Aristocats had realised an idea Walt had supported, but made without his guidance, while Robin Hood was a film for which the artists were entirely responsible. These projects also allowed them to bring in new voices and talent to Disney, many of whom were champing at the bit to prove themselves. All eyes were on the future, and to finally putting the ghost of Walt Disney to rest. Well, almost. Work was underway on a number of new projects, but before any would reach the screen, there was some unfinished business to attend to. There was still one project of Walt's that needed to be finished. It had been begun with uncharacteristic caution, had proven unexpectedly and wildly successful, and was now demanding to be completed as originally intended. Before Walt Disney Productions would release a new animated feature, they would bring the only remaining animation project of Walt Disney to its conclusion a series of shorts set in the world of one little boy's wild and wonderful imagination, and his adventures with a timid toy piglet, a rambunctious toy tiger, and a silly old bear named Pooh. The 1977 package feature, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, brings together the three animated theatrical shorts based on the beloved Winnie the Pooh stories by British author and playwright Alan Alexander Milne. Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. Though primarily a playwright, A.A. Milne is best known for his Pooh short stories, collected in the two volumes Winnie the Pooh, published in 1926, and The House at Pooh Corner, published in 1928. The stories were inspired by the teddy bear Milne's son Christopher Robin Milne had received on his first birthday in 1921. The bear was originally named Edward, but Christopher renamed it Winnie, after a visit to the London Zoo, where he saw a Canadian black bear used as a military mascot during the First World War, named Winnipeg. The Pooh in the name came from a swan Christopher had also named Pooh. The stories initially began as bedtime stories for Christopher about Pooh and the other stuffed animals in his nursery having adventures in the imaginary Hundred Acre Wood, inspired by the nearby Ashdown Forest in Sussex, where he and his father would go walking. The first uncredited appearance of Pooh in print came with Milne's poem Teddy Bear, published in Punch in February 1924, and later in Milne's poetry collection When We Were Very Young the same year. 
but his name first appeared in print with the short story The Wrong Sort of Bees, published in the London Evening News on Christmas Day in 1925. The first book of stories followed a year later, with gorgeous illustrations by illustrator and Milne's close friend, Ernest Howard Shepherd, who drew inspiration from the landscape of Ashdown Forest, as well as his own son's teddy bear. The Winnie the Pooh stories were an instant sensation, and were immediately embraced as an indelible part of British cultural identity. With startling swiftness, the stories and their characters were canonised as classics of children's literature, on par with Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and The Wind in the Willows, and were even a success overseas, with the first book selling 150,000 copies in the US during its first year of publication. It didn't take long for this literary success to be capitalised on for merchandising. In January 1930, American radio, television and film producer Stephen Schlesinger purchased the US and Canadian merchandising, television, radio and trade rights to the Pooh stories from Milne for a $1,000 advance and 66% of the revenue. Within a year, Schlesinger had built Winnie the Pooh into a $50 million a year merchandising success, essentially creating the licensing industry in the process. It was Schlesinger who added the iconic red shirt to the character in 1932. According to Diane Disney Miller, her father Walt was first introduced to the stories when she was a child, just as he had been to Mary Poppins. Dad would hear me laughing alone in my room and come and see what I was laughing at, she later recalled. It was usually the gentle, whimsical humour of A.A. Milne's Pooh stories. I read them over and over, and then many years later to my children, and now to my grandchildren. The stories were also very popular with the Disney artists, with Ollie Johnson later claiming that many of them could remember whole pages of dialogue from the stories by heart. When the Disney Story Research Department began pursuing the rights to potential properties for adaptation in 1938, the Winnie the Pooh stories and Shepard's illustrations were among them, along with Milne's beloved stage adaptation of The Wind in the Willows, Toad of Toad Hall. Inquiries were made with literary agent Curtis Brown, but though Disney were able to purchase the rights to Toad Hall, they were not able to secure the film rights to the Pooh stories from either Milne or Shepard. Walt continued to pursue the rights in the decades following, but while he was vocal in his enthusiasm for properties such as Mary Poppins or Peter Pan, he rarely expressed any personal enthusiasm for the Pooh stories. Occasionally, artists at the studio would investigate ways to bring Pooh to the screen. In 1941, Jack Miller wrote a series of treatments based on the stories, and in the early 1940s, Mary Blair created a series of story sketches for a musical adaptation set to Schumann's Symphony No. 4 and Bach's Suite No. 3. A. A. Milne passed away in 1956, and two years later, his widow Dorothy Daphne de Selencourt agreed to sell the theatrical and film rights to the Pooh stories to NBC in the US. In 1960, Pooh and the other animals in the Hundred Acre Wood made their screen debut in an episode of Shirley Temple's Storybook, with the characters presented as marionettes, designed, made and operated by Bill and Cora Baird. The following year, the film rights reverted back to the Milne estate, and Disney once again inquired after them. This time, they were successful, and in 1961, Walt Disney Productions finally secured the rights to produce a film based on the Winnie the Pooh stories. There was one problem, though. The merchandising rights were still held by Stephen Schlesinger Incorporated. Schlesinger himself had passed away in 1958, so the character was now overseen by his wife, Shirley Schlesinger Laswell. Walt was not comfortable with the idea of releasing a film of Winnie the Pooh without any merchandising opportunities that could benefit the studio, so Disney entered negotiations with Schlesinger Incorporated not long after acquiring the film rights. 
The first of two major merchandising agreements was reached between Disney and Schlesinger Incorporated in 1961, establishing a co-partnership over the characters that would run smoothly until a decade-long legal dispute over revenue began between the two companies in 1991. In 1964, story development finally began for a feature film adaptation of the Winnie the Pooh stories at Disney. But as with their other adaptations of British classics, the path to the screen would not be a straightforward one. As had been the case with The Wind in the Willows and Alice in Wonderland, the stories did not immediately lend themselves easily to adaptation, certainly for an American audience. Rather than barrel through regardless, as had been the case before, Walt and the animation department would instead make a series of careful, considered, often unusual, and occasionally controversial decisions that would ultimately make Pooh, Piglet, and the other inhabitants of the Hundred Acre Wood among the most successful characters in the studio's history. So this might be a tricky question to answer, considering this film is essentially a package film and these three shorts were shown in, you know, shown in this form in this, as this single feature film, but also shown individually. Do you, either of you remember the first time you would have seen The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh? Absolutely. It was about a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> Had you seen any of the sections of it before on their own or was this entirely the whole thing was brand new for you? I would say the whole thing was brand new. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because certain things, you know, through osmosis, you, you obviously, you know, I've seen the, the the characters, you know, numerous times just, you know, because, you know, they're everywhere. Um, but I don't, and maybe, you know, there'd be a snippet of from something in some other show or what have you. But uh, but I know, I don't think I've ever seen any of those single featurettes or the, the, the whole put together before. And I don't have any memory of seeing it and yet it all came flooding back when I did. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I've got no idea when I saw it, but I must have at some point. And what did you both make of it? I mean, this is a film that's now, you know, decades old. It's kind of the foundation stone for what we understand as the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh. What did you make of it seeing it now? Well, it's funny because I think we we have been maybe to some degree spoiled by Disney movies having, you know, rich storylines. Um, and so... You know, and and stakes, and and oh my god, what's going to happen now? You know, when, when they go to a certain place, you think, oh, something bad's going to happen, and you know, how they're going to get out of it. But with this, it it nothing like that really did happen, apart from maybe when Tigger got stuck at the top of the tree. It, it was in some ways, it felt like being in 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 an oxygen low environment, but with, instead of oxygen, it's story. It's it's kind of like. For for me, it was kind of like there was there was not not a lot to breathe in or to to grab a hold of, and um, in terms of sorry, there's lots of charm and it's 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 lovely, you know, and and there was certainly the end part of about um, Christopher Robin going off to school was uh, was very touching, but I, I actually found it actually quite hard to um, to get through all in one go, and it was, possibly it's because I was you know working and and a dad and all sort of stuff, but I and I was watching it you know, uh, late at night, but I actually found myself falling asleep quite a few times and having to watch it in bits because I actually couldn't, um, I couldn't watch it all through in, in one go. Which in some cases I think is understandable because, I mean, it's one of the, like the thing that's so surprising about this film, because I think you're completely right. It has that, it, you know, where usually we, usually we associate animated films or narrative with having tension, stakes, through line, all those kind of things. And this doesn't have that. 
apart from like little flashing moments, and even then it's not particularly strong, but it lulls you into this beautiful sense of comfort. It's like of all, like it's funny, every time I rewatch this film, I'm just hit by this enormous relaxation of just like, oh, I don't have to like, I don't have to be over, like I don't have to be invested in like drama in this one. I just get to sit back and kind of like swim in this. So in a way, like that makes sense, particularly because, you know, a lot of the films you're talking about, you know, that Polly watches and the things, films that you remember, like, you know, you've got a film like Bambi. Bambi is like absolute high stakes. It's like life, death, you know, the power of nature. Winnie the Pooh is just, you know, a two minute sequence. It's just, yeah, it's just a light. Or like watching like that, at that moment where Pooh and Piglet are just walking in a circle following their own footsteps. And like, you just watch them do that for two minutes while they just debate what this thing is they're following without realizing it's themselves. There's just like a staggering simplicity to the whole thing. Yes, it's it's almost excruciating um, because, <laughs> again, I didn't mean that to be funny, um, but <laughs> I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, it is like I think they make films now just as much for the parents, you know, as because, yeah, who's taking the kids to see films? The parents. And so you, I can easily sit through a Frozen or a Moana. It appeals to me just as much, but... For adults to watch this film, it is, you are absolutely right, Daniel, you can just swim in it and it's, but it's so hard to stop yourself from craving drama and craving those high stakes. And I almost feel it could be a little bit off um, to make this comparison, but you know, when we all went into lockdown and life had been so busy and jam-packed and all of a sudden it just stopped and we were looking at each other going, what do we do besides eat and, you know, just sit here and wait. It, it, it had a similar kind of arc for me as, <laughs> as being in lockdown, just kind of going, wow, this is, it's simple pleasures and it is, you're just, they're just being. And I think that line at the end where Christopher Robin just talks about how adults say, what are you going to go and do? And he says, I'm not going to go and do anything. You know, I just, just delight in the nothingness of childhood. It has been such a lesson throughout this last couple of years to delight in just being, you know, but it's been so hard to get to that place. So I would yes. say, yeah. And I mean, that's the kind of I think you've hit the nail on the head that, like, the, the joy of the film is just, like, you know, from an adult finding those small pleasures in life and those small pleasures in, you know, tiny moments is something we have to kind of relearn. And I'm, you're, you're completely right. Like, in the last two years, it has been a case of having to kind of relearn finding those little joys. But it, the thing that's so striking about these characters is the ease with which they can do that. And, like, you know, they're all, like, it's this funny thing of, Everything is very simple. They have very simple needs. Like Pooh is just like, I need to eat. I need to eat honey. And like that's his, he's fixated on like these, all the, all the characters are fixated on single things, but they're always so busy doing them. Like they're just so like, even down to the fact of like Pooh has to go to his, his thinking place and he has to sit there and he has to think the way that children, children find the simplest pleasures in the, in the tiniest things, even down to like, like I was thinking watching it, how strange it is that when children you know, are at play, one of the first things they do is they go towards doing domestic tasks, like emulating doing domestic things like cleaning or cooking or like things that to us seem so banal and uninteresting, but for them, there's the kind of like joyful busyness to it, like Piglet, like, you know, cleaning 
the leaves out the front of his of his house. But the, yeah, that this movie kind of is like these pinpointed little moments where it's like these little self-contained vignettes of little acts of busyness that don't necessarily relate to anything else. And it's always like, I've got a task, I've got to complete it. Okay, I've done that task now. What's the next task I have to complete? Uh, who are you? I'm Pooh. Oh, Pooh. <laughs> sure. Uh, what's a Pooh? You're sitting on one. With the rights secured, Walt announced the start of development on a Winnie the Pooh feature project in 1964. He seemed to have an unusual degree of caution over the project, possibly still haunted by the critical and commercial failure of Alice in Wonderland in 1951, after which he had vowed never to adapt another work of classic British literature again. While the Pooh stories were more contemporary than the Alice books, they posed three very similar problems. They were revered by audiences in Britain, were not as familiar to audiences in America, and didn't have a sturdy narrative structure. The first decision in handling these problems came as a shock to the core team of artists at Disney. Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, Milk Cole and Mark Davis were all great admirers of the stories and were enthusiastic about the project. But instead, Walt handed it to Wolfgang Reitherman, fresh from his first solo directing experience on The Sword in the Stone. It was an unpopular decision, with no one more disappointed or frustrated than Reitherman himself. Unlike his peers, he had no enthusiasm for the stories, finding them too childish and too British. Walt then went one step further, assigning Thomas, Johnson and Cole to The Jungle Book and handing the Pooh project to the less invested Eric Larson and John Lounsbury. It was a tactical decision on Walt's part. Fidelity to the material had been a major issue on Alice, and he wanted to avoid the same issue arising on the Pooh film. We were pretty surprised, remembered Thomas. Walt didn't bother to explain, of course, but as far as we could figure out, he felt the material was pretty low-key to begin with and was afraid that if Ollie and myself and Milk Cole and some of the other Pooh fans got hold of it, we would want to stay too close to the book, and that, I suppose he thought, would make for something too precious. Here's Frank Thomas talking about the project. Walt was concerned that uh, they would have more charm than substance. And uh, he wanted to be sure that we had, we captured the story, that we captured a strength in the characters so that they would exist on their own. They didn't rely on you having read the story. In Ritherman, Walt knew he had a director who would be more inclined to bend the stories to his, and ultimately Walt's, will, and hopefully make a film more accessible to American audiences. He was counting on Ritherman's frustrations having a positive effect on the project and bringing the film more in line with Walt Disney than A.A. Milne. Story development began with Larry Clemens, Ken Anderson and Xavier Antensio forming the core writing and development team. There isn't a lot of information available about this initial treatment, but later anecdotes suggest that they had been developing the first book into a feature, possibly finding some narrative cohesion between the disconnected stories. Here's story artist Vance Jerry talking about the early discussions on how to approach Milne's stories. Now, that was a picture that had a, uh, that was a really a, a struggle. Because Winnie the Pooh was not, a, not cartoon material. It, there was nothing in there to suggest cartoons as we knew them at that time. Oh, and Walt kept saying, let's get the whimsy in there. Oh, come on, you guys, let's get the whimsy in there. And then we have a meeting to try to decide what whimsy was <laughs> amongst ourselves. At some point in 1964, with two-thirds of the Leica reel completed, Walt reviewed the work and made his second unexpected decision. In a story meeting following the screening, it was decided to transition the project from a feature into a 25-minute animated short 
that could play before a live-action feature film. A number of reasons have been suggested for why Walt took this course of action. One is that the childish humour of the stories would not be enough to sustain the film, and would ultimately make it feel slight. The other was his concern that American audiences were not familiar enough with the stories to guarantee the financial success of a feature film. The stories were certainly well-loved and successful in America, but this wasn't enough of an assurance that a costly feature production was worth the risk. In the years following the disastrous release of Sleeping Beauty, Walt had to be more careful and more cautious with the animated features. Walt decided that a featurette would be a better way of introducing the characters and stories to American audiences. The short would use the first third of the developed feature, covering the opening chapters of the first Pooh collection, and if it was successful enough, would be followed by another, potentially collecting a series of Winnie the Pooh shorts into a feature later down the track. For now, focus on a smaller scale project would be a more effective use of time and resources, and allow them to deal with the challenges the adaptation was already posing. One challenge was the visual look of the film. Just as had been the case with Alice, the illustrations that accompanied the Winnie the Pooh stories were as iconic as the stories themselves. Any animated adaptation would have to deal with either translating Shepard's style, or, as had been the case with Alice, rejecting it entirely. The former approach was adopted, and Shepard's hatched line style was cleanly adapted by the background and layout department by adding extra detail and filling out the black and white illustrations with colour, an approach perfectly suited to the Xerox process. The gorgeous simplicity of Shepard's drawings was maintained, but now expanded into the richer visual environment, more fitting of an animated film. An even greater challenge were the characters themselves. All of them, with one notable exception, were inspired by toys in Christopher Robin's collection. Here's Ollie Johnson on their approach to the character designs. Well, we all loved the Shepard drawings when we started on the picture, and still do. But you can't take something like that that is drawn only in certain views. We have to be able to draw the character in every position, every view. So we had to design our own characters. We decided to keep the eyes flexible so that the character could close and open the eyes, they could raise their eyelids, they could move their mouth around and their cheeks a little bit so you get the feeling of an expression, but they couldn't look like this around or up that way like Mickey could. We had to do it by turning the head. And actually it was better because it made him look more doll-like. Winnie the Pooh himself was particularly tricky. His design most self-consciously resembled a stuffed toy bear, which typically did not have elbows or knee joints. Stiff movements were important for selling him on screen as a toy, but they restricted his movements to an extent that he might be less engaging in motion. Here's Wolfgang Reitherman speaking about the character. That was a whole different kind of bear. That was a whimsy. That was a uh, almost a teddy bear brought to life and uh, uh, had nothing to do with trying to uh, emulate or get real bear movement. Luckily, the artists at Disney had faced a similar issue before. In the late 1930s, during the development on Pinocchio, they had been stuck trying to render the title character as a faithful representation of a wooden puppet. The results had been so unsatisfactory that Walt had shut the project down until Milt Call had proposed his redesign of the character as a little boy rather than a puppet, slightly exaggerating and humanising his movements. With this in mind, Winnie the Pooh was also approached with the principles of childlike movement in mind, the artists occasionally cheating with the suggestion of knee and elbow joints and thumbs. 
They also gave him small dots for eyes, both to allow a greater range of expression and to give him a doll-like appearance. The final decision was to adopt the red t-shirt that had become familiar to American audiences through the official Pooh merchandise since 1932. One question I did want to ask was, did either of you have a soft toy as a child that you like, you know, carried around everywhere that you were, you know, you, that wouldn't leave your side? Yeah, I had Huggy Bear, which was, if you remember the, um, the Huggies fabric softener ads, well, kids got so obsessed with that character on the Huggy Bear ads that the, if you basically bought, I think it was like, you know, three bottles of Huggies fabric softener, you would send in the barcodes and they would send you back a bear. So that was my, I had the exact bear from the ad. And what is crazy is that Polly was asking me about that bear because it's in our house now to this day. And I went on YouTube and I found the original ad and she got really obsessed with Huggy Bear. <laughs> and, and then, so now she has her own Huggy Bear that we found in an op shop and it's called Rattle Huggy Bear because it's got a rattle in it. So, yes, that that was mine. And it's, yeah, it's just so funny because it's, yeah, my childhood toy is still in my house and my children delight in it. I think I had one, I think, that was just in my bed called um, um, Very Creatively Koala. Yeah, so I, I think I had that. And, and I don't know if that was, I think that may have come down through the family somewhere, some in some way also because it was pretty ratty to uh, the, to the point that it is certainly not in our house now. And I have no idea where it is. It's always slowly decomposing somewhere. But no, I don't know if I, if I was uh, as attached to, um, to a bear or a thing like that when I was, uh, when I was a kid. Maybe my bike. I think I, I think I was I took my bike everywhere. That was probably the closest. Why do you think children do like when you know if they do have an object that they are attached to a soft toy or a toy that kind of stuff? What do you think? Why do you think that is? Like as parents observing it with your own with your own children, why do you think that children have this thing of being drawn towards like a single a soft toy, a bear, a doll, a koala? Like what 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 do you think is going on there for them? I remember being in a writing class once. And we had to reflect back on childhood and nearly every single person wrote about tactile things, about how something felt to their fingertips. Just that that astounded me. And even the teacher was like, this is really weird. Like, is that how children remember things? Um, if it is, I didn't know, you know, it's it's not something that we talk about that much, I don't think. I always thought that smell was something that you, you know, would have the longest memory for. But, yeah, everybody wrote about, yeah, being able to touch certain things. And I see Daisy now who's only just turned one and she just cuddles soft toys all the time. And she, yeah, she strokes them. She, she will often just find her just cuddling toys. It's um, maybe if, she, if they can't cuddle you, it's the next, you know, it's, it's like a piece of comfort. That need to, to love and kind of project, you know, love uh, on, on things. And in terms of play with soft toys or with toys in general, I mean, it's that, that sense of, like, I remember that's one thing I remember from being as a kid is just the sense of being able to create entire worlds with them. There's that, you know, that kind of innate world building that you have as a kid of like, you know, you know, something as simple as putting a bunch of soft toys around a table and putting like cups of tea in front of them. And like, you're sitting there, you know, having a conversation with these soft toys. It's like, they're, they're kind of an access 
and access to childhood imagination and behaviour. I mean, in, with, in the case of Winnie the Pooh, that kind of is projected in its kind of ultimate form with the fact that, you know, you have this imaginary landscape which is populated, with the exception of the gopher, it populated entirely by soft toys that are all interacting with the world as a toy would through the eyes of what a child would imagine a toy would do if it could do anything. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... It, I think that that first, the opening scene where we see Christopher Robin's childhood bedroom and the the toys, the the all the different characters from Winnie the Pooh in in that in that bedroom, and then you go into the world, and yeah, it, it's just so so well done. And I think that that is the stuff that childhood dreams are made of, because all of us at some point wished or hoped or thought that our toys would come to life which is no doubt why I got obsessed with Huggy Bear from the ad because it was it was it came to life it had a voice it was like promoting fabric softener <laughs> so you know it it yeah that was enough for me to just be completely enamored with this bear and maybe also because they are tactile and they are small and they're compact and they're not threatening and they're something that a child can manipulate and collect and hold and you know, it's it it fits within you know in a like for, you know, for a little kid where everything is so much bigger than them. Everything is bigger than them. The idea of you know it's why they're drawn to like maybe it's why they're drawn to like you know puppies and kittens and baby animals and that kind of stuff. Or like I remember one of my sisters was obsessed with babies. She was just obsessed with them as a three or four year old. But that's the idea of like this is a thing that I can contain in my world and have some sense of control, ownership, interaction with. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote, and I cannot remember the childhood uh, professor or expert that it came from, but saying that when children play, they play as if to extend themselves. They play way above themselves as if that the through the act of play they can, you know, imagine and leap and that, that you'll never see them playing their same age. You always see them go up like you said, with cleaning activities or making food or it's very adult and that's how we, yeah, that's how we grow. Oh, hello. Am I glad to see you? It's more friendly with two. The persistent issue on the first short, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, was how to translate the inherent British quality of Milne's stories to the screen in a way that was both faithful to the material and easily accessible to American audiences. Walt insisted on the Disney tradition of a narrative driven by gags and situational comedy, and by reducing the scope of the story to a much simpler adventure, Pooh's pursuit for honey, his adventure climbing a tree to raid a bee's nest, and his eventually becoming stuck in Rabbit's warren door after eating all his honey, allowed for such a structure. This included the centerpiece gag of Rabbit using Pooh's posterior as a decorative piece, with his legs refashioned as a shelf, a gag Walt suggested and developed himself. In order to maintain the wit of Milne's writing, Ritherman and his team came up with an ingenious solution. Rather than trying to tear the stories away from the pages of the book, the book itself became the backdrop against which the stories would take place, with Pooh and his friends interacting directly with the text on the page. This emphasised the storybook quality of Pooh's world and offered an even greater scope for visual humour resulting in one of the most unique and imaginative adaptation techniques utilised in a Disney animated film. Another approach would be to translate Pooh's charming short poems, or hums, into the musical language of the film. Rather than using them as written, Walt tasked the Sherman brothers with composing new songs for the film in a similar style. Much like Ritherman, the Shermans were initially unenthusiastic about the project. They found the stories too charming, dismissing them as kiddie nonsense. 
At the time, they were deep in production on Mary Poppins, and mentioned the project to production design consultant Tony Walton, they were surprised by his immediate and infectious enthusiasm for Milne's stories. Bolstered by Walton, the Shermans looked at the material once again and started to find their way into it. Here's Richard Sherman talking about the music for the first Pooh short. Walt wanted the songs for Winnie the Pooh to be eminently singable and very simple, and yet uh, try to be original and whimsical. The breakthrough came when our very first song, we knew we were going to write a title song. And so we decided to set the scene and make it very gentle and sweet. And it was kind of like a love song to this whole idea of being young and believing in little teddy bears and little piglets. The song would be accompanied by ingenious orchestrations by composer Buddy Baker, who used the same principles as Prokofiev's classical piece Peter in the Wolf by associating each character with a different instrument. A bass clarinet for Eeyore, a flute for Kanga, a piccolo for Rue, a clarinet for Rabbit, an oboe for Piglet, an ocarina and French horn for Owl, and a baritone horn for Pooh. The song was accompanied by a subtly animated recreation of Shepard's map of the Hundred Acre Wood. While these decisions offered some effective solutions to the Britishness of the Pooh stories, it wasn't enough to satisfy Walt's concerns. Two additional decisions to further Americanize the short would later prove highly controversial. The first was to cast Wolfgang Reitherman's son Bruce as the voice of Christopher Robin, despite his American accent. The second was to introduce a new character that would be more easily identifiable for American audiences, in this case, repurposing the beaver character from The Lady and the Tramp. Here's Vance Jerry on the character of Gopher. Larry came up with the Gopher because, God, we were dying for a cartoon character. So Larry came up with this gopher who was not a uh, was not a created by Milne, and we can do anything we wanted with him. The introduction of Gopher might make sense in theory, and he is certainly added with tongue-in-cheek humor, the character continuously remarking that he's not in the book. His addition, though, suggests a misunderstanding of Milne's stories. While characters like Tigger and Kanga are based on animals not native to the United Kingdom, they are directly inspired, as are all the characters, by Christopher Robin's toys. Gopher is not one of Christopher Robin's toys, clearly presented as a real animal, and gophers are native to the United States, not the United Kingdom. Walt was determined to make a distinctive American stamp on the stories for audiences to connect with. Both Walt and Reitherman supported the addition of gopher to the characters of The Hundred Acre Wood. This was a film we watched a lot when I was a kid. My sister had it on VHS, this complete form of it. So it's a film I knew really well. But one thing that struck me revisiting it for the podcast was just how potent and accurate a portrait of a child Winnie the Pooh actually is, like the character himself. Like, what makes him such a potent portrait of a child? Like, what are some of the aspects of his his behaviour or personality that just seem so accurate to the way that a child interacts with the world, responds to things, makes sense of the world. Just the naivety. Like, I actually forgot and was reminded when I watched it just how childlike Winnie the Pooh. Like, I, yeah, for some reason didn't remember him being that um, sweetly... Blunt? Yes! He's so blunt. Like, Christopher Robin asked him a question is like, Why? Like that, that moments where you just kind of like, you know, like, oh, you're a hero, Pooh. I am. Like he has his furrowed brow and he just kind of looks and he's just like, I don't, I don't understand. Everything, like he's just the bluntest character. Yes. And children are so honest. And that honesty just to answer exactly how you're feeling 
we don't do that as adults. We we don't tell the truth a lot. You know, people ask how you are or, you know, a certain question and you mask a lot. It's it's really fascinating to and that's I think that that idea of it being excruciating is just to go, oh wow, like just to have that level of of freedom to just say whatever is exactly how you are in that moment. Yeah. And there's no shame either. If an adult you know, went into somebody's house and somebody said, you know, I, 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 uh, you don't want any honey, do you? You, you take the cue that like that they're, they're not, they don't want to give you all of their honey, you know, and certainly after you had maybe, let's say one jar of honey, you probably see their face drop a little bit and you go, maybe I shouldn't have any more honey. But for Pooh, Pooh just wants all the honey. And so, you know, who has all of the honey and then clearly wipes out poor rabbit's, you know, supply. Rabbit, you know, is devastated, as anybody could see. But, you know, Pooh's just like, all right, well, I'll see you later. The amazing thing is it doesn't come across as selfishness. Like, it, the, he's coded in such a way where he's clearly so young. And also, like, it's, I think it's, like, important that at the, end of the, at the end of the film, when Christopher Robin goes off to school, it's not him going off to high school or going off to university. He's going off to probably kindergarten. So everything in this world is very, like, like we're talking, like, when he has, when the Pooh has, like, probably the, would be, like, a two or three-year-old. And so in an adult character or an older character, that would be seen as selfishness. But in a, in a character that young, it's kind of charming in just how brazen it is. Oh, absolutely. I remember when my when I was a kid, there was a kid next door. We had a pool in our house and uh, and they, they didn't at their place. We lived in Sydney at this point and I was like seven and he would have been five or six. And he was a bit of a pain, to be honest. He was always trying to find some way of coming over in, in, and getting into our pool. And, uh, you know, he would ask us and we'd go, no, you can't go. We're, we're, we're swimming by ourselves, Michael. So he would just wait out the front of our house until my mum came home. And my mum would you know, would come in and he'd be there literally kind of in his swimmers with a towel around his house. And he'd just be there going, oh, gee, sure is a hot day today, isn't it, Mrs. Kennedy? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's like, yes, it is. And he'd go, oh, yeah, great to have a swim, wouldn't it? Would you like to come over and have a swim? Oh, okay. And he'd just kind of find his he – would, he would always find a way of just getting into our swimming pool. And I think there was, and he, there was no sense of shame, no sense of like, I oh, know these kids don't want me in the pool. It was just like, oh, I got in, hooray, I'm in the pool. <laughs> that wonderful sense of innocence with, with no shame, a direct, I have this goal, I must achieve it, and, um, and you know, and come what may. And that consequently, consequently makes him such a funny character. Like, that's another thing that you, I mean, in, in some ways, like, because, you know, I grew up watching the Winnie the Pooh TV series and all the other versions of Winnie, Winnie, Winnie the Pooh that Disney would make, but none of them are as funny as this. I guess because it's the thing of like it's it's an understanding. There's such an astute understanding of childhood behaviour in this film around the idea that they have no shame. They're very blunt. They have very basic needs, and they're going to go for them. And it's like when you were talking before, Sarah, about the idea of it being kind of excruciating to watch these characters move through the world. In a way, it's like because our brains as adults move at a million miles an hour. We're used to the idea of cognitive thought and thinking ahead and putting together an argument. But for these, for a child, putting together an argument takes a tremendous amount of effort, and it's kind of like you have to step through it. And so, like that moment, again, going back to the moment where where Pooh and Piglet are kind of following their own footsteps. There's the the reason that sequence takes as long as it does is because you can see Pooh going through. Well, 
this is my thought, then that can follow logically by this thought, and this follows logically by this thought, and that's reflected in the characters, like Piglet does the same, Tigger definitely does the same. Then you have young, even younger characters like Rue, who doesn't even think about anything that they're doing. It's just like jumping straight into whatever they're, whatever they're going into. And it's kind of, yeah, reflecting that sense of a child putting all the pieces in place as they as they go, which is very charming and very funny when it is as direct as this. Absolutely. I just thought it was worth pointing out that I think that the reason that it is that that level of innocence can be it's it's actually hard for an adult to watch that now is because we we know the codes. We know you know when an adult explains to you like what Justin was saying with his neighbor not getting it and adults you know always sort of say oh you you can't do that because that would come across like this and all those codes that we have to learn as we as we grow up you know yesterday i picked polly up from school and she goes i want to go horse riding can we go this afternoon she doesn't go horse riding like I was like, no, you can't go horse riding. And she got really, she was like, what? And she had a tantrum in the back of my car. And I'm like, in what world? Like, do you think that we can, you can just get in my car after school and we go horse riding? But to her, she's like, well, why? Like, I know horses live around here. Like, why can't I just go ride one? And that is, I think that's what we're dealing with is that, yeah, it's hard for us now to watch it, watch the innocence. It's so so tricky to remember that you once were that child that didn't you didn't realize there were rules that you know because it's not nostalgic i think that's a very important aspect of this version of winnie the pooh is that it isn't dealing in nostalgia it isn't dealing in the idea of like oh to go back to a time where everything was more innocent and joyful and playful it's it's a it's much more uh direct than that it's it's less about looking at childhood through the lens of adulthood in reminiscence and more just going, this is what childhood is. It is this sense of play. It is this sense of discovery. And it is a sense of self-centeredness, selfishness. Like, there's cruelty in this film. Like, there's actually element, like, what they do to Tigger in the last third of the film is actually quite cruel. And all three of the, you know, Piglet, Rabbit and Pooh are all complicit in the decision to treat, to mistreat Tigger. I think that may be one of the reasons why what we were talking about here is that it's actually a film that doesn't have any nostalgia to it. It's funny because you you get that sense of the of the innocence, but also the cruelty of children, and or I guess the the casual cruelty, like they don't understand that this is actually quite a hurtful thing. They just have this objective, which is to stop Tigger, you know, from bowling them over anymore, and largely because they've been kind of convinced by Rabbit, who I mean I'd argue is is actually not necessarily a, a child character. Like no, Rabbit reminds me of a grandmother or neighbor or something. Yeah. Yes, cantankerous kind of older person who's just like sick of that, sick of this crap, <laughs> but still you know can't. Isn't isn't adult enough to actually um, uh, uh, enforce, you know, boundaries? Um, so is then just always upset by the these boundaries being crossed because they don't actually have. You know, he doesn't have the capacity to kind of go. No, you you cannot have all my honey. No, you cannot bowl me over like this, or you know what have you. I mean, it's maybe it's less that he's an adult character and more that it's like you know if 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 Pooh is maybe three, four, five years old, Rabbit's maybe seven or eight years old. Like that level where it's, you know, I'm starting to want to have responsibility in the world. I'm wanting to be a bit more of an adult. Because, you know, he's, 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 his is the only house apart from Owl, who's probably the most coded as being, maybe Owl is like maybe 12. 
But like R- Rabbit's the only one where we see actually homemaking. We see inside Rabbit's house. We see him setting up for lunch. We see him dealing with, you know, the vegetable garden. There's a sense of like, oh, no, I've got, I'm responsible, but he's also immature at the same time. Is there any research out there saying what the ages were? I'd just be curious. No, to- nothing that I could find. I mean, it's just, it's interesting watching it. Because one thing that I was going to kind of talk about, ask about, which is, the fact there are no adults, there's no adult characters in this world at all, adult human characters. How important do you think it is in a, in a, in a world like this that there aren't those influences? Because it, you know, it, it's very conspicuous that, you know, the most senior character in this world seems to be Christopher Robin. And so by consequence, if Christopher Robin is the most senior, then all the other, you know, if all the other characters have kind of aspects of various ages of childhood development up until, you know, puberty. How important is it for a world of children at play to not have adults around? Hugely, which is, I guess, why in every Enid Blyton book ever, the adults at the very beginning send them away with a picnic and then they can go into their world. And, yeah, they've largely avoided having that um, in in this, yeah, particular series of stories, which is, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And like you said, the only glimpse that you get or, you know, like the idea that there is an adult around is this sense that um, Christopher Robin will be sent off to school. This We haven't spoken about this part of it yet and I don't want to go off on a tangent, um, but he has a gun and, <laughs> like, I love... <laughs> I yes, Winnie the Pooh the, has a gun. I, the, in the opening credits of, um, you know, when, when the, the film starts and they're showing his childhood bedroom and all the toys and then the, the camera just pans and then there's just a gun sitting there, which then later comes um, into the story, which it has a cap on it. It's just a little cap gun sort of pretend rifle, I think, once once the um, animation begins but in his room it looks like a full-on rifle but and also when you actually when they go to christopher robin's tree like out the front he has like a tricycle and a bunch of other you know toys and what have you and there is a gun and it does not have a cap in it <laughs> it's just a regular old gun what we don't know is that christopher robin when he's not on screen is off hunting and killing animals in <laughs> fact he may be the man that killed bambi's mother <laughs> <laughs> you and I, if we're going to do an extended feeling. universe, but I mean, it, it's but that's, again, that's another aspect of play acting adulthood. And I mean, the thing is that every time that there is a crisis, a crisis that the, that the the animals can't solve themselves, they go to Christopher Robin. So like, you know, Pooh's stuck in Rabbit's door. We've got to go to Christopher Robin. Piglet's missing. We've got to go to Christopher Robin. Tigger's kind of stuck, stuck stuck at the top of the tree. It's the it's the closest that it comes to of, of adult of children going to an adult going. I can't solve this problem, and he always has to come in with the sense of maturity and uh, authority that they don't have. He's the one that kind of has to guide them through their navigating the world. Yeah, that's it's right. Yeah, he's, he's play he's play acting the adult. I, I, I did pick up something at the very end when um, Christopher Robin says, "You won't forget me, will you?" You know, Winnie, boo. Uh, I almost forgot Winnie. And he says, no, I won't forget you. And he, even if I'm 100, I won't forget you then. How old will I be? And um, and Robin's, Christopher Robin says, oh, silly old poo, you'll be 99, which means that he's just one year younger than Christopher Robin. So whatever age Christopher Robin is, I kind of pe- pegged him as uh, as being around about six or seven. That, that kind of means that actually poo is around 
you know, five or six. But then uh, I guess it depends on how, how old you, you kind of put uh, Christopher Robin as, as being. And I want to know. I want to go and study and see if someone has tried to work out the... Because, I mean, that's the thing with Winnie the Pooh is that on top of it being one of the great works of, of English literature, it's also one of the... Mo- I imagine it would be one of the most analysed works of children's literature of the last 200 years, you know, comparable to Alice or Peter Pan. Because there's just so much... There's so much richness in the relationships and the psychology of these characters that you don't, you know... We think of Winnie the Pooh now as the character that you put on a fucking Instagram post with an inspirational quote that someone's made up and it's just because they've put a picture of Winnie the Pooh next to it, everyone assumes that Winnie the Pooh said it. When there's a lot more density to this character, and that's reflected in the film, there's a lot more density to this character than we, we give him credit for and all of them credit for. There, now. <laughs> Isn't this a clever disguise? What are you supposed to be? I'm a little black rain cloud, of course. (laughs) Silly old bear. Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree completed production in late 1965 and was released in cinemas on February the 4th, 1966, attached to the Disney live-action feature The Ugly Dashend. While the feature has been almost entirely forgotten, the short proved popular with American audiences despite mixed reviews and was once again released in the fall of 1966, attached to the Fighting Prince of Donegal. While the response in the US was warm, the response to Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree in the UK was significantly more hostile. The short seemed to be the last straw for the critical and literary community after their objections to Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, and prompted some of their most vicious reviews of a Disney production, the Daily Mail proclaiming it an extraordinary attack on the last remnants of the British Empire. As well as the general tone of the short, they targeted a number of decisions that had been made specifically to appeal to US audiences. The appearance of the non-Milne character of Gopher would have been an offence enough, but it was even more so when the beloved character of Piglet was nowhere to be seen, apart from being referenced in the opening titles of the short. It appears, wrote the Daily Mail, that in the very unenchanted forest of film commerce, a Gopher is worth more than a Piglet. While the criticism of Gopher may have been valid, His appearance was never at the cost of Piglet, who does not appear at all in the chapters on which the short was based. Another objection came from the casting of Bruce Reitherman as Christopher Robin. Critics were furious that the beloved character had an American accent, enough so that Felix Baxter, the film critic for The Evening Standard, launched a campaign to have the voice performance changed before its release in the UK. Baxter cabled the studio personally to express his concerns before the short could be screened at the 1966 royal performance of the film Born Free. Regret excerpts from Christopher Robin short shown here give him an American accent, he cabled. Begged to point out this character virtually English folk hero. Such treatment bound to cause criticism. Please consider re-dubbing before royal film show. When Disney didn't reply, Baxter intensified his protests in print arguing that Americans would be just as upset if Johnny Appleseed had been given a British accent. There was never an official response from Disney, but news eventually reached Baxter that the only print of Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree in Britain had been recalled to Burbank to be redubbed with a British voice for Christopher Robin. Disney is going to redub the voice, he proclaimed. Long live Uncle Walt, rule Britannia. For the British print, Ritherman was replaced by young British actor John Wormsley. Even more successful than the short was the merchandising campaign launched to accompany it. 168 items were produced from 49 licensees, including soft toys, puzzles, games, records, books, and fashion items. It was such an enormous success that it surpassed the campaign for Mary Poppins, 
Disney's most successful at that point, and established Pooh as their most popular and profitable character since Mickey Mouse. Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree enjoyed a strong success during its numerous theatrical runs in 1966 and into 1967. Walt's instinct had been proven right. As a proof of concept, the short had connected the character with a wider audience in a manner where the success had been healthily outweighed by the risk. In his review of the short in the New York Times on April 7, 1966, critic Howard Thompson wrote that the Disney technicians responsible for this beguiling miniature have had the wisdom to dip right into the Milne pages, just as Pooh pours for honey. The flavouring with some nice tunes stirred in is exactly right. Wistful, sprightly and often hilarious. We can only hope Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree means a whole series to come. Audiences wouldn't have to wait for long. Another character that I wanted to bring up to talk about is Tigger. Um, obviously, he's iconic and in some cases possibly even more beloved than Winnie the Pooh. But he's a really fascinating kind of flip side to Pooh in that Pooh has this tremendous kind of sturdy confidence in his in the way that he moves through the world, the like his behaviour, the questions he asks. But Tigger has this thing, like Tigger's like that kid at school that nobody knows how to control. He reminds me a lot of Mike, the oldest of my brothers when he was little. Like, even down to that sense of there's that point where he says, I'm hungry. Pooh says, well, I've got honey. Do Tiggers eat honey? Yes, Tiggers eat honey. He eats the honey. Tiggers hate honey. But you said that Tiggers, that Tiggers eat honey. No, Heffalumps and Woozles eat honey. And there's a sense of Tigger is constantly having to... He's that kid that that always kind of pretends he knows what's going on and speaks with tremendous authority. Kind of like Alberto and Luca as well, of like, oh, this is... this is I don't have the answer to this, but I'm going to pretend that I have the answer to this so I always look like I have... Like, I know what I'm doing. Um, which kind of suggests that Tigger is, a char- is, of all the characters, the one that kind of taps into childhood insecurity more than any of the other characters in the woods. It's fascinating. Yeah, I um, to some degree I thought that, that Piglet was that sort of you know I'm I'm scared of everything, but uh, but, but Piglet kind of wears that on it on on his sleeve, and he doesn't uh, try and there's no artifice in uh, in Piglet. Whereas um, yes, I guess Tigger is what would happen if you created a um, some sort of armor um, around yourself. You obviously see that all stripped away when he gets to the top of the tree, and uh, all that armor kind of. Um, disappears even more so when he's told he can't bounce anymore where it's like this is the thing you know his bouncing is like defines his personality it's the thing that he loves most in the world and you take that away from i mean it's the you know this is maybe reading too far into it but you know it's if these animals were children that would go back to homes at night to parents and to family homes and to you know you know somewhere that they could they could call their home you get the impression that Tigger is the one that goes back to a house, to a family that doesn't necessarily love him as much as he loves them. Or, I mean, we're told constantly in the film, you know, and the most wonderful thing about Tigger is I'm the only one, which he sings as a sign of, like, like a, you know, a superiority. But every time I watch this film and he says that, I always feel a little bit sad because it's just like, well, where did he come from and where is he going? He doesn't have, you know, all these other animals are very comfortable in their in their the fact that they're the only ones of themselves except for obviously Kangaroo and Roo, but a defining aspect of Tigger's personality is the fact that he is the only one of himself. Yes. 
Yeah, I never thought about that. Now that you've said that, I completely agree with you. That slightly unlovable kid that kind of annoys everybody, but they, you know, you put up with. But is down deep down actually a good kid? Like, you know, it's like like um, uh, River Phoenix's character in Stand By Me. Like that, that character where it has that quality of everyone's decided that he's a nuisance. Everyone's decided that he's, you know, misbehaving, bad, delinquent. He's got, hasn't got a future, but he's actually a good kid that has a lot of heart and is trying to do good in the world when he can, but his circumstances get in the way of him. Tigger's kind of similar to that. And like that, the cruelty that appears in, in that, the third part in Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 is like the, the, tr- the tragedy is the fact that all he's doing is just trying to be himself and he's making mistakes and he's not being aware of everybody else. But is that enough to punish him by telling him that he actually has to strip his personality away? It's like that, you know, that it, in, in a way Tigger is like, is like that kid with, you know, is a victim of that aspect that parents to adults have with children of making children feel terrible about themselves. He's the only character in the film that's ever made to feel terrible about who he is. Yes, who is being made to adapt. That in this world everybody else is quite calm and loving and, you know, dottery or whatever, but nobody's asked to change, right? Not even Eeyore. You would think that somebody would go, come on, like... (laughs) Shit, Stop cheers so depressed. fuck up, Eeyore. <laughs> exactly. No one ever asks that of Eeyore. It is, it is fascinating that, yes, that hyperactivity and that, that energy that just does not quit, those are the kids that we expect to fit into our world and that we will hammer it out of them. It's interesting that you bring that up when we now, I guess, inhabit a world in which we're starting to realise that maybe we don't, come down hard on those kids that maybe we need to make those those adaptations for for them yes i mean tigger would i guess t- today be considered neurodiverse and um and you know and it would there would be you know ways of um getting to him and uh you know in in, in on his level and um and uh, there'd be a lot you know structures to to help him kind of navigate the world as opposed to being you know ostracized and uh, and punished for who he is. That's ultimately the success that he has at the end of the at the end of the third act of the film is of them allow of going. Actually, we need to let you be who you are, and that not be a problem. But then also the fact they then to go they then have the moment of going. Well, what if we do look at the world through Tigger's eyes? What if we do start to be like, oh, he loves this bouncing thing. What if we gave it a try? The stupidity of Rabbit who doesn't know how to bounce, and it's like you're yeah. a fucking <laughs> rabbit, mate. Like, come on. <laughs> But, but, and it's, I mean, I think back to what my brother was when he was a little kid and he was an absolute, and I, like, I think even Tigger was a character that he as a kid did relate to a lot, but he was exactly that kind of kid. And like, he had an issue as a child where he couldn't hear properly because of an allergy that he had to a particular kind of food preservative. And so he'd come home from school and he couldn't, my mum would say, you know, oh, you know, what what did you learn at school today? What nursery rhymes did you learn at school today? And he'd just make them up because he didn't hear them. And nobody realised, so everyone thought he was just misbehaving and a nuisance. By the time everybody realised that actually they needed to see the world through his eyes, it was kind of too late. Like, it, you'd already, they'd already lost this kid. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the, the tragedy of Tigger. And then ultimately the success at the end of it, which is kind of a, it's in a way, I always think it was weird that the film becomes more, I mean, I guess this is because it's not a traditional feature length, like feature structured feature film, but that it ends with Tigger more than it does with Pooh. But in a way it makes sense because Pooh's going to be safe. Pooh's going to be fine. The way the world that 
this this world they exists in they exist in accommodates for a character like Winnie the Pooh. It needs to learn to accommodate for a character like Tigger, um, and only through doing that do they have any understanding of how to be better people in the world. I think that's the kind of nice thing at the end is that you get the sense that all of the animals in the in the Hundred Acre Wood are now better because of their tolerance for Tigger. Uh, you've you've put it in a new perspective for me, Daniel. I'm going to watch it again, and I'm going to stay awake <laughs> for the whole the whole way this time. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, it's interesting that they're the only ones that I can see that actually have much of an arc. Uh, Rabbit and uh, and Tigger, you know, a rabbit especially, um, you know, goes through a big a big change. It's almost kind of like that let's fly a kite sort of thing at the end, you know, um, like Mary Poppins, where you know the the father who's so serious all the way through just kind of discovers his his silliness and his childhood, you know, his, his childishness, and then and then you know is is uh, is okay with flying a kite and doing those sort of things, like you know, rabbits all of a sudden jumping and in having, you know, bouncing around. It's almost like rabbit learns to share by the end of the by the end of the arc of the film and not share like when we think of teaching a child to share we think of sharing their toys or sharing their food or sh- like you know that kind of thing but actually what's more important is sharing your time and your energy with someone and that's the thing that rabbit is so reticent to do through the entirety of all of the three parts of the film is he's reticent to be to be you know open and sharing of his time and his energy. And by the end of it, that's what he kind of comes to, which feels like a very important thing for a child to learn at that point where they're starting to move towards puberty. They're starting to move out. They're in the primary school age of learning that actually just being patient and tolerant of others is an act of generosity that is very important to learn more so than, you know, he can give Pooh as much honey as he wants and just, you know, bear it on the chin, but actually he needs to learn, you know, to share time, space, energy, generosity with someone, which is what he learns with Tigger. Is uh, Rabbit, do you think, the kind of personification of what Christopher Robin believes adults do? Like when they see, you know, adults working or kind of, t- you know, toiling in the field and those sort of things, the, the, the things that they, they're concerned about, like, um, um, you know, like being serious and, you know, don't have time for this sort of stuff. You know, that sort of adults may be like that if the kids are playing and they're like, oh, I don't have time for that. You know, just just, just calm down, you know. i just got to get this done. You know, seeing that and kind of projecting that on this other character, which is Rabbit. So you have some characters that are a bit more kind of projecting the innocence or the, the fears or the artifice of, of being a child, whereas Rabbit is, is perhaps Christopher Robin projecting that sense of like, this is what an adult does. So, you know, the, that kind of sense of anxiety and have to have to take the world head on and, and be serious and no time for the silly things. I think that's a good observation, though, that, I mean, maybe that is in some respects what all of the animals in the Hundred Acre would represent, a different aspects of being a person according to what Christopher Robin's view of the adult world is, so that, you know, there's, you know, Pooh is the one that sits there and think. Like, thinking is Pooh's big thing, but, you know, um, Rabbit, you know, being domestic, like being being practical is Rabbit's thing and being, a, you know, authority is something that Owl does, but being grumpy is the thing that Eeyore does, that each of them represent a different aspect, maybe a different aspect of Christopher Robin's personality or, um, as you said, maybe aspects of what he thinks his personality should be. Yeah, as you, you kind of transition into adulthood, like it's the world that he can control that he's kind of he's kind of created away from adults, but it, it's still, you know, to some degree influenced by his perception of what adults consider important. <laughs> Am I correct in assuming it is a rather blustery day outside? Yes, sir, Al. It's a very, very blustery day outside. 
After the success of Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, a follow-up was guaranteed. But when the project went into production the following year, circumstances of Walt Disney Productions had changed. Walt had given the go-ahead for a second short, but ten months after the release of Honey Tree, in December 1966, Walt suddenly passed away, leaving The Jungle Book, the new Winnie the Pooh short, and the early in-development feature The Aristocats unfinished. While The Aristocats would be the first Disney animated feature to enter production after Walt's death, the second Winnie the Pooh short, tentatively titled Winnie the Pooh and the Heffalumps, would be the first animated project of any kind to be produced and released without him. It would be a smart move for the animation department, unsure of their future without Walt's leading force, finding their feet on a more modest project before launching into a complicated feature. The second short would adapt stories from A.A. Milne's collections Winnie the Pooh and The House at Pooh Corner, with what would probably have formed the middle third of the abandoned feature film. Before production began, director Wolfgang Reitherman and his team took stock of the work they had done on Honey Tree. The interaction with the storybook, the design of the characters and the use of music were all clear successes, but Reitherman's relationship with the character and the original stories had changed. He'd grown an affection for the material and thought that the most successful aspects of the short were those that had remained faithful to Milne's stories. The second short would benefit enormously from this realisation. In the second short, eventually titled Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, Pooh and the animals of the Hundred Acre Wood weather a vicious storm that brings havoc to their peaceful home. The short would finally herald the arrival of two of the most beloved characters from Milne's stories. The first, whose tiny and nervous best friend Piglet had been hinted at in the opening song of the first short, but had never appeared on screen. The second, the rambunctious troublemaker Tigger, would make his on-screen debut. The role of the problematic gopher would also be reduced, and after redubbing the character for the UK release, actor John Walmsley would reprise his role as Christopher Robin. With production now over on The Jungle Book, many of Disney's finest animators could now join the team working on Winnie the Pooh, some of whom who had been disappointed to miss out the first time. Essentially, our approach on Pooh was no different from our approach on any other film, remembered Frank Thomas. The characters were different, however, and the whole secret was to understand the characters. Once you get inside them, then the animation follows. In this instance, of course, Milne had given us such wonderful characters to work with. While the first short had been approached trepidatiously by the Disney artist, the second was embraced wholeheartedly. Perhaps it was the shared passion for the material, or perhaps it was in the wake of the recent loss of Walt, but the short became a labour of love for those who worked on it. Animation and character duties were shared equally among the animators, with the exception of one soon-to-be iconic character. Milt Cole had delivered a powerhouse performance with the tiger Shere Khan in The Jungle Book, so it made sense to give him the responsibility of bringing Tigger to the screen. While Shere Khan had all the attributes of a real tiger, Tigger would need to adapt those features into those of a soft toy. There is a beautiful and simple elasticity to Cole's animation, a perfect match for the memorable vocal performance by vaudevillian actor Paul Winchell. Tigger was an extremely rambunctious kind of a guy with an awful lot of enthusiasm in his voice and uh, uh, silly at the same time and full of laughter. So I came up with a, oh, hey, look at that guy staring at me in the mirror. <laughs> He's wearing pajamas. Winchell also improvised Tigger's signature catchphrase during the recording sessions. I even wrote one line just by ad-libbing. Every time when he left Winnie, he would say, well, TTFN. 
ta-ta for now. <laughs> and he fly out of the screen. The character was also given the perfect entrance, with the Sherman brothers delivering one of their best Winnie the Pooh songs, The Wonderful Thing About Tickers. Call's animation was then brought to life by the artists in the inking and painting department, who developed a special dry brush technique for the character. The short benefited enormously from the improved resources and bolstered talent behind it. The animation is more assured, the storytelling more confident, and while the short still took liberties with Milne's material, the world of the Hundred Acre Wood was now more sturdy in its construction. Even the animation of Pooh himself improved, with a more articulate and psychologically complex performance. Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day was released as the companion short to the Disney live-action feature The Horse in the Grey Flannel Suit on December 20, 1968. It was an immediate commercial and critical success, even in the UK, with many proclaiming it superior to its predecessor. A few months later, its place in film history would be assured when the short won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Subject, awarded posthumously to Walt. The success of Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day further cemented Winnie the Pooh and his friends into both popular culture and the fabric of Walt Disney Productions. It also represented some of the finest animation produced by the studio in the decade following Walt's death, with an attention to detail, storytelling imagination and visual daring missing almost entirely from the feature films that were to follow it a few years later. There was no question that a third short would be needed, but while the first two would come in quick succession, it would be another six years before everyone's favourite silly old bear would return to the screen. How delicately, or I guess as a flip side, just in, you know, as a possibility indelicately, do you think the film handles that transition moment? So talking about that last few minutes of the film where, you know, Christopher Robin's going off to school and saying goodbye to Pooh, how delicately or indelicately do you, do you think the film handles that moment of needing to leave that aspect of childhood behind? And I guess uh, kind of to link to that, seeing that in your own children, I know they're still quite young, but, you know, Polly would be not far away from starting school, like hitting primary school. How well do you think the film handles that transition? And what do you see through your own experiences in the film of that transition? I thought it handled it quite well. I mean, I felt quite touched by by that, perhaps because you project your own loss of childhood onto it to some degree. Just similarly to why Toy Story 3 was so so touching, that sense of you know, putting putting childhood things behind you. Um, I thought it, it it was actually quite good. I mean, and I felt I've quite you know there was there was quite a sadness of you know Christopher Robin leaving. And just never coming back. And what do these animals do for the, for the rest of their lives? Like, what you're going to come back in what 94 years or never at all? You know, it was, it was uh, quite a quite a touch of, of sadness to it. I mean, in in a, in a way, also, yeah, that that sense of maybe betrayal of like him him leaving and what never coming back. You, know, you set up this whole world. What are we going to do? You know, you, you clearly we get ourselves into issues all the time. I mean, we we need you to help us. What if the fucking you know? tiger gets stuck at the fucking top of the tree again? What if Pooh eats too much fucking honey again? Well, what I actually thought was interesting about that whole kind of, um, you know, calling Christopher Robin for help is there's this other force who helps, which is the the crazy conceit of, this, of, the, of the film, which is that they're actually characters in a book. There's, it's, it's, there's kind of meta pullout. 
Oh, we haven't even talked about the meta aspects of this film. God, I didn't even think that was so. I was so caught up in about the childhood psychology stuff. I didn't even talk about the the, the meta stuff in the film. Yeah, so there, it's like there's the you know the Christopher Robbins in charge of the world, but he's not. There's an adult reading the story, and who he's like turning the book on its side and and saving Tigger and. Uh, you know, and there's so there's kind of weird breaking the I don't know if it's a, is it the fourth wall or is it the fifth wall? Is it going into another dimension? It's it's quite strange how they they suddenly start talking to this person who's reading the book that we're we're watching, and this person is saving things. So there's this kind of Deus ex, mach, ex, mach, ex machina. I always have trouble saying those words, but um, you know, force that's also controlling things, and you know. And and therefore Christopher Robin is like this weird bit of a head fuck in the end. You're yeah, falling like, into a Christopher Nolan, uh, Christopher Nolan uh, head spin. Justin, pull am, yourself I'm out. Going. Pull yourself out. <laughs> Don't get to the Wake last up, level. Spin the top. Spin the top. Spin the top. But I mean, we could have an entire conversation just on the the joys of the storytelling methods in this film for that. Like and like it, it, like the street, the way that it reflects the stream of consciousness of the way child child children construct stories and ideas and that kind of thing. But I mean. To kind of go back to the to talking about that moment at the end between Pooh and Christopher Robin, the thing that strikes me as a point of comparison to what happens because the ending of Toy Story Three is beautiful, but the the difference is that this is not emotionally overwrought. In fact, the expectation would be that Christopher Robin would be upset about this, but Christopher Robin is the one leading the conversation. It's kind of like he's the adult explaining to the child, "This is what's going to happen next." There's it like it, he. You know, Christopher Robin understands the logical next step is that I have to go to school, and that's just the way that it is. And so the beauty of it is that it is understated, that it doesn't, it isn't, you know, it has beautiful, deep, deeply moving emotions to it, but it doesn't oversell them. And it also doesn't make, it makes it clear that this is the logical next step of what was, what is going to happen. How do you both feel, this is a big question, how do you both feel as parents knowing, like, your children are approaching that moment of you know going out to the, into the world as a little a little person with you know thoughts and ideas and behaviors and being responsible for their own actions and in, you know going to school how do you both feel about that i think that it's a completely different world to the one where christopher robin being so together and just being like i've just got to go off to school like kids today they need therapy before they even get there i mean it's just <laughs> I do find it incredibly uh, interesting how together kids can be today about particular things. And we see it in Polly all the time where some things are just a total cinch for her. If she feels comfortable, she can take on the world. But if there is even a sense of trepidation, just how quickly and easily that those feelings of being brave could just, they, they can just evaporate in in two seconds flat and that's kind of the line that you're always walking with children is yeah just testing how far you can I don't want to say push them just just what what situations that you can put them in where they will flourish or where they're going to need a huge guiding hand um and pep talks and god knows what else um I don't know if Justin would feel similarly to me there, just in terms of, yeah, just just that fine line that you are constantly. I just feel like kids like Christopher Robin, they were just told what they were doing, whereas now it's more of a conversation. There's a degree of kind of almost English fatalism to yes. 
to uh, you know him him leaving is like all right well off to boarding school <laughs> yes see old chap going off to the war um man i'll see you again but uh, anyway cheerio it's almost the one time where where the adult voice of aa a. milne betrays the stories a bit because it is such you're right it kind of is an adult's view of what a child should do when that moment comes which feels like which I guess is now breaking how beautiful the ending is, but I guess it's everything else about the stories is so and such an astute observation on childhood in a similar way that like you know Alice's Avengers and Wonderland is a very astute observation on you know the rambunctiousness of you know pre teenage girls or Peter Pan is a great observation on the the cruelty the inherent cruelty of children. But then this very ending, the idea of Christopher Robin is just so calmly going off to school is just like, well, that's what the parent probably would like the child to do, I guess. Yes. Or maybe he's super calm because he's had such a great childhood, Daniel. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> Been fucking around with the woods with a bunch of soft exactly. toys and a, and a culturally uh, incorrect gopher. <laughs> yes. Yes. Ooh, the wonderful thing about triggers is triggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber, their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. Uh, but the most wonderful thing about triggers is I'm the only one. I'm the only one. The second Winnie the Pooh short had been the first major project after Walt's death. But in the years following Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, Walt Disney Productions returned to feature animation with the Aristocats and Robin Hood. Plans for a third Pooh short were very much in place, but would not be pursued until these projects were completed. According to the little that is known about the original planned feature film, the first two shorts would have constituted the first two acts of that film. The third, Winnie the Pooh in Tigger 2, doesn't seem to have its origins in that project, instead developed only after the release of Blustery Day. The title, a play on the famous campaign slogan from the 1840 US presidential election, Tippecanoe and Tyler 2, signals the shift to Tigger as the central figure of the short, responding to his growing popularity with audiences. Drawing primarily from two chapters in the house at Pooh Corner, the short finds the animals increasingly frustrated with Tigger's incessant bouncing, and Rabbit determined to put him in his place. Once again, animators Milk Hall, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson lent their skills to bringing the world of the Hundred Acre Wood to life. But with Wolfgang Rytherman working on other projects, directing duties were handed to John Lounsbury. The major voice talent also returned, including Sterling Holloway, whose performance as Pooh had now become one of the most iconic in Disney animation. By now, John Wormsley was too old to return as Christopher Robin, so the part was recast with young British actor Timothy Turner. Conspicuously absent from the production were the Sherman Brothers. Though their songs from the previous shorts would be recycled for Tigger 2, the brothers had left the studio under strange circumstances during the production of the Aristocats and did not return for the third Pooh short. There isn't a lot of information available about the making of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, but it's clear from the quality of the short that the same care and attention lavished on Blustery Day was given here. The quality of the animation is superb, and Lounsbury is able to match the energy of Ritherman's direction. If it lacks in anything, it is in the cobbled together quality of the narrative. While Blustery Day was able to establish a strong throughline, Ticket 2 is let down by its episodic structure, even if each episode is charming on its own. Winnie the Pooh and Ticket 2 was released theatrically on December 20th, 1974, seven years to the day after Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. The short was attached to the Disney live-action feature The Island at the Top of the World, and by all accounts appears to have been another success, 
culminating in an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Short. With yet another successful Pooh short under their belt, it would have made sense for Disney to begin preparations for a fourth. Instead, they would look back to Walt's original plan and finally bring it to fruition. Probably if you were to see Christopher Robin in, you know, in the real world, so not in, you know, in, in the, the world that you see at the very beginning of the, of the, uh, of the film, you know, he probably has far more, you know, tra- tantrums and ups and downs in those worlds, in, in, that, in that world, in the, real, in the real world, where, you know, uh, he probably just flips out when he's, you know, told to eat his dinner or go to bed. Just or, gets you his know. gun. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of threatening mum and dad, um, the gruesome end. Um, and, uh, but when he goes into that 100-acre wood fantasy land, then he, you know, he does, he doesn't have those kind of those emotional ups and downs because he has control and he's the one who's deciding that he's going off to school. Um, and, and so, therefore, it's a far more stable world and a world where he can be this, you know, this, this calm authority over these other little, you know, silly animals that he, you know, he has um, kind of willed to life. Um, and so I think that's why you get to you know, him, him being so calm and kind of playing the adult of like, you know, I'm, you know, that, that sense of certainty that he has, whereas you can almost guarantee that in real life, like any other child, he'd be flipping out left and right about, you know, various things, not eating his dinner and, uh, you know, wanting to watch something all the time. Also, I think that as all children's books tend to do, they finish on and then they went to sleep or, you know, it, it just has this perfect resolution when actually when you're reading those stories to your child in bed, they're so not ready for bed yet and they're, they're fighting it. It has a very similar ending to Alice, the first Alice book. You know, it ends with, you know, somewhere a bear will be waiting. The idea that, you know, childhood will always be sitting there in the back of your mind even as he grows older. And Alice has exactly the same ending, where it's Alice's sister watching Alice run off after having explained her, you know, very curious dream and remembering her own experiences of being that young and, you know, her own wonderland and being happy for her her sister, you know, going through this, her younger sister going through this process. That's probably one of the few moments of nostalgia in it, of the idea of, like, childhood being a thing that you kind of carry in like, you know, carry in a locket around your neck or carry it like, you know, something close to your heart or carry it around as a soft toy that you carry that you carry from being a child into an adult that, you, you know, your huggy bear that sits in your house, Sarah, is almost like that's the, the bear that will always be waiting, the symbol of your own childhood. To kind of ask one last question before wrapping up on, to wrap up on talking about Winnie the Pooh, and it's kind of, I guess it's a, it's a tricky one, but why do you think we love this character so much? Why why do you think Winnie the Pooh is such an indelible icon? Because it's not even like he he supersedes characters like Peter Pan and Alice and you know the characters in the Wind in the Willows. He's act, he's a, he's a legitimate icon, and he was an icon from pretty much the moment he appeared in print. Why do you think? Through the lens of this film, why do you think Winnie the Pooh is such an icon? I think that the characters are just so well crafted, particularly Pooh. Uh, I think I was reading in your in your show notes about his red top and how that was actually a marketing choice that came later. That was not how he appeared in the original A.A. Milne books. And I don't know, particu- like maybe that's something particular to children, just that iconic, you know, it's like Humphrey B. Bear or, you know, just the wiggles and those primary block colours. It's like instantly identifiable. But... Um, I 
also just wanted to say that we took Polly to uh, Tokyo Disneyland before COVID and would you believe, now I don't know if this is just a Japan thing or if it's like this at all the Disneylands, I'm not sure, but uh, there's a ride there, it's called Pooh's Honey Hunt and it was the longest wait for, I, I mean, it was it was probably I think an hour-long wait when we lined up and normally it would be more than that, but we went on it really late at night and it's like over in five minutes, but it's what they all, that's the, that's the big, that, you know, despite the splash mountains and it's a small world, it's Pooh's, that Pooh's Honey Hunt is where it's at, at Tokyo Disneyland. And I, I found that so fascinating. And I think Justin, we commented on it. We were like, what the hell is with this ride? Like, why is it Pooh? You know, is that, why is Pooh so big in Japan? And as I said, maybe maybe it's not just Japan. I mean, it, he is such a global icon. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird thing, isn't it? It's kind of like, I mean, part of it may, may be marketing with the merchandising just becoming so um, you know ubiquitous that you, to some degree, you know, you just kind of grow up accepting that um, that he is, you know, this this lovable character that that he's, he's just part of you. Either you you kind of imprint. Some sort of emotional connection to to him. I would say also it's just. I mean, he's just a he's a beautifully drawn bear. You know, he's just like, and just like a he, he looks so you know cuddly and he's so lovable and innocent and he would never say anything mean to you. The minute he appears in the film, poking around the the, the corner of the tree and then like bouncing on his own name. I mean, it's one of the great masterpieces of of character design in an animated film. Like, you're right, as soon as you see him, you can't help but burst into a smile with his little, like, dot eyes and his big smile and his rambunctious form and he's, like, he's just bouncing along and it's, it's, it's impossible not to be charmed by him and not, impossible not to instantly identify exactly who this character is, where they have come from or what they represent. Everything is soft with Pooh, isn't he? Like... I was reading about how the animators struggled to show his the bends in his limbs because they wanted him to appear soft but obviously malleable that he could move. But um, And, yeah, I think just happiness, softness and this obsession for sweet food, kids just <laughs> instantly get that. It's so funny. I mean, any kid who had that much honey would, would vomit for the rest of their life. <laughs> And never want honey again. But it's funny because they kind of they kind of make honey look like it's this amazing thing that you can just have lots of, you know. But it's so funny. Like fucking Turkish delight. C.S. Lewis In Nadia, tricking yeah. us into thinking Turkish delight was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but I mean, because it's funny because I, I I never had Winnie the Pooh around me. Um, I, I'd never kind of had my myself my you know as as I just said I before I hadn't seen. Uh, any Winnie the Poohs until this week, so it had never, you know, um, had that kind. Of, it hadn't permeated, you know, my my childhood, and yet I still have an affection for Winnie the Pooh as a just as a character. Just looking at him, picture of him now, he's just, you know, he's, there's just a love. You just want to love him because he's just got this this kind of, you know, way of looking at the world that you kind of, you know, ad, admire to some degree. But he's also just, yeah, he's just a lovely little bear. So uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. Why other little lovely little bears haven't kind of transcended to, like he has? Maybe it's the name Winnie the Pooh. It's it's something else. It's kind of I don't know. There's so many elements to it. And then of course just the power of Disney, the sho- shoving these things. Down the <laughs> love this bear. You will love this bear. Damn it! But what about Paddington? No, love this bear, you idiot. What are you doing, Pooh? Tracking something. Tracking what? 
Well, that's what I asked myself, Piglet. What? And what do you think you'll answer yourself? Oh, I shall have to wait until I catch up with it. Pooh, for a bear of very little brain, you sure are a smart one. Thank you, Piglet. There are conflicting anecdotes around what exactly Walt Disney had planned to Winnie the Pooh. There is strong evidence that despite the shift to a featurette, he always intended for there to be a feature film later down the track. But it is unclear whether the feature would have been entirely new material, or, as it would end up being, a package film with the featurettes combined as a single program. Regardless of his intentions, in the wake of the success of Winnie the Pooh and Ticket 2, plans began to bring the three beloved shorts together. To do so required some clever editing and the generating of new material. Each of the shorts had begun with a live-action sequence set in a children's nursery, albeit a very American-looking one, with soft toy recreations of the main characters. The stories then began with the opening of a copy of A.A. Milne's book, and concluded with the book closing. The film would borrow this same structure and reuse this material, but new narration and additional animation of pages turning would help transition cleanly between the three stories. There would also need to be small cuts to all three shorts to keep the runtime to an acceptable length. Bringing the three shorts together would also require a new ending, since each had simply concluded with the book closing. Thankfully, Milne already had the perfect ending for them. In the postscript to The House of Pooh Corner, Christopher Robin must say goodbye to the animals in the Hundred Acre Wood before he goes to school, including a gentle and heartfelt conversation with Pooh about the concept of growing up. He would bring the film to an emotionally satisfying conclusion. There is some mystery around the origins of this sequence. It would make sense that no work on the sequence would have been necessary until the shorts were packaged together, but while John Wormsley voices Christopher Robin in the first two sections, and Timothy Turner voices him in the third, Wormsley returns in the epilogue. Since Wormsley would have been in his late teens by the time the feature was produced, this suggests that it was recorded in the early 1960s. Perhaps it had been intended as the ending of Blustery Day, but there is nothing to suggest that it was included in any prints of the short. Perhaps it had simply been recorded early with the intentions to use it as a conclusion to a package film later. This vocal inconsistency, though, doesn't detract from the power of the sequence, one of the most tender in any Disney animated film. The final film, entitled The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, was released theatrically on March 11, 1977. Easily the strongest of all of the Disney package films, it has since been acknowledged as a classic, despite criticism of its treatment of Milne's stories. Now combined as a single program, the ingenuity and imagination of the three shorts bursts off the screen, and unlike the previous package films, makes for a consistent and holistic experience. Despite their early misgivings, the Disney animation team crafted moments of genuine magic, with a deeply heartfelt and unexpectedly witty portrait of childhood made manifest in this strange collection of soft toys living in the woods. There's certainly an honesty and an innocence to these Pooh characters. They aren't putting anything over on anybody. They don't try to put anything over on each other. They're very honest with each other. I think they believe in each other and care for each other. And I think that the kids could get a wonderful lesson from that, so can grown-ups. In the decades that followed, Winnie the Pooh would continue to grow in popularity, including further theatrical shorts, a television series, and a number of direct-to-video and theatrical features. In the early 2000s, Disney investigated the idea of restoring Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree with some of the material deleted when the original feature film version was scrapped. 
but ultimately decided against this when not enough material could be found to be included. Instead, Winnie the Pooh would return to the big screen and to the Disney animated classics with his second major feature film in 2011. Sarah and Justin, what are your favourite Disney animated films? And I'm going to be very strict. They can't be Pixar. They can't be live action. has to be a Disney animated film. What's your favourites? I'd say something like Sword in the Stone. I remember loving a lot as a kid. Um, And I think it's just the Arthurian legend. Um, It really connected with me. It's great. It is a great film. It's like one of the unsung great Disney classics. I think Beauty and the Beast... Um, 1992? One, 91. 1991, okay. So, yeah, I was in year four and that opening scene of of going into the village, I I just, the little town, the opening, and I think also like I loved Angela Lansbury and just her as Mrs. Potts and even just this is, this is so 1991, but I think Celine Dion and Luther Vandross, I think it was him. Uh, uh, they- Peebo Bryson. Peebo Bryson. Sorry, yeah. I always get, yeah, it's, it is. Thank you for correcting me. That song was just so iconic with the movie. Like just everything about that movie was, ah, uh, it's just heaven. Well, what I'm going to do at the end of the whole podcast when it's done is actually tally up what everyone's responses are to, to work out what everyone, like the the favourite of the podcast. So I think, Sarah, now you've made sure that Beauty and the Beast is back in the lead. But now, <laughs> thank you, Justin, you've put Sword in the Stone on the board, which I'm very happy about because I was like, <laughs> somebody say Sword in the Stone, my God. Oh, very good. Thank you so much both, Sarah and Justin, for being on Ink and Paint. It's been a real joy to talk about this film with you, particularly like the density with which we talked about Winnie the Pooh, which I was really like hoping for and you delivered in spades. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Daniel. Pooh, when I'm away just doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? You mean alone? Just me? Yes. And Pooh, promise you won't forget me? Ever? Oh, I won't, Christopher. I promise. Not even when I'm a hundred? How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. <laughs> Silly old bear. The release of The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was a bittersweet moment for Walt Disney Productions. The film was the culmination of their work so far on A.A. Milne's beloved stories, successfully establishing Pooh as one of the most popular fictional characters in the world and launching a merchandising industry that persists to this day. Mixed into that success was Walt himself. This would be his last film for Walt Disney Productions, over a decade after his death. Compared to the films immediately preceding and following it, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh has far more in common with the tone and texture of the films of the Silver Age, a time capsule of Disney's past. With the Winnie the Pooh feature film finally realised, it was as if the ghost of Walt Disney was finally being laid to rest. In the meantime, The new generation of Disney artists had been working on a project of their own, a shelved project Walt had considered before his death, but had no enthusiasm for. These new artists were keen to prove themselves, keen to both return Disney animation to the heights of its early days, and carve out a space for themselves within the legendary company. While the nine old men had been present at the construction of Walt Disney Animation, 
Their disciples had grown up with it, been inspired by it, and found their calling within it. They would test their mettle on a dark and strange new film, one more indicative of the changing artistic landscape of the 1970s. The story of two intrepid mice on a mission to rescue a little girl and bring her home. next episode of Ink and Paint. It reminds me of when a child maybe will fall through the cracks because we've trusted that someone like Madame Medusa would actually care for this child. I'm joined by Senior Clinical Practitioner at Kids First, Madupe Aladajibi, to talk about the beautifully melancholy tale of The Rescuers. Thanks again to Sarah Collins and Justin Kennedy for joining me on this episode. You can find more information about Sarah's work at sarahcollins.com.au and you can follow Justin on Twitter at Mr. Junkins. A special thanks also to listener Kevin Cedeno, who sent us through a list of great questions they had about the making of the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. They actually helped us follow some lines of investigation into the creation of the film. So thanks, Kevin, for helping set us off on a few exciting and interesting paths through the 100-acre wood. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh including concept art and animation sketches and information about the history of the film on home video. You can follow Ink and Paint on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at Ink Paint Pod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. You can also email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. A big thanks to all of our listeners supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support the podcast and have access to exclusive bonus content, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash inkpaintpod. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and follow on your favourite podcasting platforms, including now Spotify. And don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lemon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Theme music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Grace Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, maketheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. indicates that Christopher Robin is, is one year older than Pooh. We estimate that Christopher Robin is five years old through the first two books. So there you go. So he's five and then, yeah, Winnie the Pooh is around four, I guess. Mm. But, but this is this is according to lavasurfer.com. So, you know, <laughs> take that as you – take that uh, however you want.